Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our Gospel processional reading for this morning, John tells us that Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the fulfillment of a certain Old Testament prophecy, a prophecy spoken through the pen of Zechariah. If we want to understand precisely what's happening in Christ's triumphal entry, if we want to understand what's happening on Palm Sunday, if we want to know what it means for Jesus to enter Jerusalem lowly and riding on the colt of a donkey, it's certainly good to take a look at those words from Zechariah, at the context surrounding all of that. So Zechariah is a prophet who writes at the time when the exiles are returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding their city and their temple after a generation or so after the destruction of, by the hands of the Babylonians. They are receiving their kingdom back, at least in small measure. Their days of languishing in foreign lands under the cruelty of foreign kings are ending. And in all of this, they are seeing a foretaste of the great gospel promise of the Messiah the promise of the king of kings who was going to set all things right. So in the words both before and after this Palm Sunday prophecy, Zechariah speaks about the impending destruction, conquering, and humiliation of the foreign kingdoms, especially those in close proximity to Israel, the cities of the Philistines and the Phoenicians who long had corrupted God's people, will be no more. Assyria, Egypt, and Greece will indeed be no more. These kingdoms will fall, paving the way for the Messiah, the king who will arrive in his city humbly riding a donkey. So the kings of violence and oppression, the kings of war horses and chariots, will be no more. They will be conquered and crushed by the king of peace and mercy, the king who arrives in lowliness to show that he has come to be the savior of the lowly, the sinners, the poor, the broken, the forsaken, and the oppressed, the crushed, and the burdened. As he pours out defeat upon the nations, that king will pour out mercy on you. So in the end, the donkey-riding king of lowliness will stand tall while all the other kings of this world will crumble into nothing. In all of this, Christ's triumphal entry shows us precisely what Zechariah was promising. Jesus is the king who will live forever while all the kings of this earth will die. But the kings of this earth will not die easy. They won't go quietly into the grave. They will thrash about and seek to destroy everything they can as they gasp for air beneath Christ's feet. So, beware the dying kings and their thrashing wrath. Our Lord certainly saw this in his passion, and we see this in the chief priests in our text for today, in that gospel processional reading. When the chief priests and the scribes saw Christ's popularity, why did they hate him so much? Why did they conspire to put him to death? 
It's because in Christ's love and mercy, they saw their kingdom of influence and prestige and self-righteousness being torn down. The chief priests and the scribes were so terrified that the people wanted to make Christ a king, not because they truly believed that Christ wasn't a king, but because they recognized that he was. And that meant they were not the kings they thought they were. And so they put about, they set out to destroy this true king so that they could keep their small, meaningless kingdoms. And the quite tragic thing is they were willing to sell everything to put that king to death, to keep their little territory. When Pontius Pilate in Matthew's Gospel washes his hands of Christ's blood, how do the chief priests respond? They cry out, His blood be on us and on our children. They curse themselves and their own offspring. They're willing to bring condemnation upon their own children in order to keep their little kingdoms and put Christ to death. In John's Gospel, when Pilate asks them, shall I crucify your king? They cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Throughout all of the Gospels, they're denying the rightful claim of Caesar to have authority over them. They are insisting that only a true son from David's body would have the right to rule them. And yet when that true son arrives, they're willing to sell out their right to a son of David. They're willing to trade their right to be ruled by one of their own people. They are, in fact, trading their right to be ruled by God, for God is their king. Willing to trade all of that in order to keep their kingdoms. This is precisely what Jesus means when he says in the second part of our reading today, which we heard at the lectern, when John tells us that the, uh, that the chief priests and the scribes those antagonistic to Christ love the glory of men more than the glory of God. So in all of this, we see the depths that these men will go to in order to protect their crown. There they are condemning themselves and their children, turning away from their God, throwing away his promises, thrashing about wildly in order to keep Jesus from tearing down their kingdoms. Now, of course, the chief priests and the scribes do this because, as Jesus tells us, they are of their father, the devil. They're doing what their father is described as doing in Revelation chapter 12, when St. John tells us that we are to beware the wrath of the dragon who has been cast out of heaven and come down to earth because he knows that his time is short. He knows he's been defeated, so he's simply trying to cause as much damage as he can until then. That's how the devil clings to his little kingdom. And we so often see this in the world. We've, of course, seen it throughout history in the political kingdoms of the world that have raged against Christ and his church. We see it in kings and emperors, princes and earthly leaders who have torn down churches put Christians to death because Satan led them to believe that Christ's mercy and salvation were threats to their own kingdoms of wrath and corruption. 
That's the story of the persecution of the church throughout history. Satan influencing the leaders of this world to think the way that he does. But Satan also does this on an individual level as well with our own many kingdoms in our own lives. Human beings are a fascinating group of liars. If you were to ask 10,000 people whether money buys happiness, all 10,000 of them would tell you no, at least the vast majority would, because that's the right answer that you're supposed to give. But we don't live according to that answer. Very far from 10,000 out of 10,000, very few out of those 10,000 will actually live according to the answer they've given because we don't believe it. We believe that earthly treasures grant us peace, that they earn us the glory of men, that they make us matter, and in particular, that they make us happy, that they give us all that we need to be at peace in life. One more dollar away, one more pet possession, if we can just gather it, that will finally be enough. And so we hoard our possessions, and here Christ comes to us, our lowly king, telling us to pour out his mercy upon the lowly, to show compassion, to show charity to those who are in need, to support the preaching of the gospel throughout the world, to put food on the tables of those who are hungry. And yet we hear that command, and we turn away from those in need, refuse to love them, refuse to care for them, refuse to support them, because in all of this we see that Jesus is coming to us seeking to tear down the kingdom of our wealth, the kingdom of our greed. And so we persecute his little ones because we can't imagine living without those treasures and those crowns. If you were to ask 10,000 people whether it's important to forgive, to forgive those who sinned against you and hurt you, once again, virtually all of them would tell you less but would tell you yes, but still we don't live according to that answer. When we hear Christ's word to forgive those who have sinned against us, we may mouth the right and proper liturgical response, but from our hearts we don't forgive. We keep a record of transgressions. We just bury those wrongs committed against us into our memories and we never let go of them. We hate those who have sinned against us, who have hurt us, who have mistreated us. We slander their reputations to all who will listen. And we hear Christ's word call us to repent, but we refuse. Because in that little kingdom of our anger and our bitterness, we find that earthly glory. We find that image of the king who should not be treated in this way, who deserves so much better from those who should recognize his glory. And all of this we refuse to forgive because we want to keep that rival king, Jesus Christ, from conquering us. And so, in the end, like the chief priests and scribes, we are willing to trade away everything in order to keep our miserable little kingdoms. We're willing to trade our dignity and our honor, willing to trade peace with those we were supposed to love, willing to trade our very souls and our place in the arms of God in order to keep our place in this world. 
in order to keep our crowns. The kings of this world don't die easy. Now today, in just a few minutes, my son Anders will make his confirmation vows, and he will receive Christ's body and blood for the first time. And so, Anders, let me give you a word of warning on this glorious day. The world you're growing up in is a world that is far more hostile to Christ and his church than even the world I grew up in not too terribly long ago, at least outwardly so. You will feel the pressure of the devil outside of you throughout your life from people who will want you to join them in warring against Christ in order to keep their earthly glory. And you'll also experience the warring of Satan, the lies of the devil, within your own heart, trying to convince you to turn from your Lord, trying to convince you to believe that the kingdoms of this world, that the kingdom of your own glory, of your own peace, is worth preserving at all costs. Don't believe that lie of the devil. And if you want to find the strength to reject the devil's lies and to rejoice in the wounds of Christ, well, that's a pretty easy thing to do. You'll find that strength in the very sacrament that you will be receiving for the first time today. Because in that sacrament, you will feast upon the same broken body and the same forgiving blood that the King of Kings gave to you upon the cross. So here and in that same way and in that same feast, all of us will receive that strength, that might, that victory over that conquered dragon and all raging kings of this earth. So today, here on Palm Sunday, the king rides into Jerusalem in lowliness, showing that he is not like the kings of this world. He has not come to enslave his enemies. He's come to set them free and to make them partakers over the true enemy, over the one who enslaved them. And this is something that he will do just a few days later when the cheers of praise and the cries of Hosanna that surround him turn into jeers of hatred and taunts of mockery, shouts and cries of crucify him, crucify him. It's tragic how quickly things turn for our Lord. And yet, in the end, it is a great and beautiful irony that we behold upon the cross. In order to keep Jesus from becoming the conquering king, his enemies lead him to the cross. What absolute fools. Because all the while, the cross was his throne and the means of his victory. It's a beautiful irony. The kings who try their hardest to survive are the ones who perish. The kings who refuse to die 
are the, king, or the kings who refuse to die easy are the kings who die. But the king who dies easy is the one who lives. The king who refuses to fight back is the king who wins. The king who goes like a sheep to the slaughter is the one who conquers. And at the cross, he conquered for you. At the cross, Jesus Christ forgives all your sins. There with his nail-pierced hands, Jesus tears down the prisons of your greed and your anger. All of your corruption that enslaved you is now no more. Every sinful act of selling what was precious and holy to escape Christ has now been destroyed by Christ and by his inescapable love. All those prisons that you called palaces, all those chains that you called glory, Jesus Christ has destroyed them all. And now your lowly king invites you out of lowliness and invites you to find true freedom in his wounds forever. That's what Jesus did for you on Good Friday. And on Easter Sunday, he gave you the right to come out of lowliness and to join him in glory forever. There in that resurrection victory, he invites you to cast off the shackles of this broken world's kingdoms and to enter into his kingdom forever, to enter his arms forever. He invites you to be at peace invites you to be at peace knowing that the day is coming when every kingdom of this earth will melt and every knee shall bow and every tear shall no longer be cried and every ounce of suffering shall no longer be felt because the king whose love and mercy has conquered is standing before you, welcoming you into his presence. So, come eat and drink the body and blood of your conquering king. Come feast on the salvation that has destroyed your sins and given you back peace with God. Come trample Satan under your feet as you walk up to the altar where your conquering king invites you to feast upon his eternal victory. Don't be afraid. Why should you fear the wrath of this world when this world's conqueror invites you to feast on his victory? Why should you fear the sins within you that Christ has already killed? Did you throw away the gifts of God to protect the crown of your sin? Be at peace. Because the king who invites you into his arms has already erased your sin and given you back in far greater measure everything you threw away. So come receive that forgiveness. Come receive that victory. Here in the feast, Jesus Christ gives you back the honor and dignity. And he gives you an honor and dignity that will never fade. He feeds you with the very favor of God that he will never take away from you. Until the last day, Satan and those under his influence 
will thrash about trying to stop Christ from winning the victory that he has already won. The kings of this world don't die easy. But don't be afraid, because they have been easily killed by the king who did die easy. And because he died easy, you will never die. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.